heard, um, I think Dan was mentioning that, uh, Kristen, why don't you stay standing over here? Kristen with the red IU sweatshirt, uh, part of the congregation. She's heading up what we're calling Adopt-A-Student, so if you're a family or a couple that would like to have some regular interaction with a college student, talk to Kristen. And if you're a college student that would like to have regular interaction with a family, talk to Kristen. And she will be over here underneath the flag after the service. So if, or if you just want to fill out some on the purple sheet, we'll get it to Kristen. All right? And then, um, uh, music was playing on my phone. I couldn't figure what was happening. I must have bumped something. Did anybody hear that? I was like, what in the world? And I was like, this happened to me like recently, and I don't know. I know there's a butt dial, but I'm doing a butt play. I don't know what that means. So I don't know. I have no idea how that happened. I was like, the heavens are opening, <laughs> but it's in my pocket. So and the song that was playing, I haven't played that song in three weeks, so I have no idea how it just came up to my. Although it was interesting. Okay. Um, also, uh, Steve Wisher, stand up, and Don. His wife, stand up. Steve is, uh, just found out last week he's heading this Saturday, National Guard, to be gone in, in Missouri for how many, how much time? Five months. And Dawn stays here because she has a job here. So um, obviously she's sad. I'm assuming he's sad too. I hope he's sad. I'm sure he's excited about what he's doing. But um, so uh, we're Sadie. Sadie, why don't you just take a moment to pray for him? Um, just good. People around them, maybe can just reach out. Yep. Maybe everyone can extend a hand in their direction. Father, thank you for Dawn and Steve and the love that you have for them and the way that you've drawn their hearts to you and the way that you've brought them together. We celebrate the year and a half they've had as a married couple and the work that you've done in their lives. And we pray in the name of Jesus that you would draw near to them, that you would fill them with your spirit, that you would comfort them with your peace, with your presence, and that you would give them a great joy in this next season, even though it's full of some unknowns, that there would be joy and hope and peace in you. We pray that Steve would learn a lot while he's away, that you would fill him with your spirit that would pour on to the men and women around him in the military, and that you would guide him in how to love and serve you and people around him while he's away. And we pray that you would surprise Dawn with blessings from friends and family and students that she teaches at IU, that you would comfort her heart while he's away, and that, God, you would work this time for them, for your glory, but also for their good, and that there would be more than right now they can even ask or imagine that would come from this next season in their lives. We lift them to you. We trust them to you. We're grateful for the wishers. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Sadie. Just so you know, too, when we ask, it, there's nothing like in, innately biblical about 
extending your hand and blessing. Scripture does talk about laying hands on someone and there's some kind of a blessing because blessing is essentially wishing for good for God for them. So we're not like, we're not like sending the force to them or anything. So we're not like doing that. But it's an expression of kind of like laying hands on them. So another thing I was going to say, just uh, knowledge that maybe you don't know, the word hallelujah we were singing earlier, Sometimes you may, I used to think this, like, what are we saying? Well, in Hebrew, halal is praise, Yahweh is God. So halal Yahweh, halal, halal Yah, hallelujah, hallelujah is praise to God. So when you're singing hallelujah, you're actually singing in the Hebrew, praise to God. So just in case you were wondering, which like I said, those are the kind of things I wonder about, and I try to figure out what we're doing, so what it means, so that's what hallelujah means. So, hey, well, I did, we did, not, I did, uh, say here mention this, it starts a week from Tuesday. Changes that heal. You don't have to get the book. The book would be helpful, but we'll talk about the same concepts, um, overcoming personal obstacles and spiritual growth. It's a course, but it's also been really very interactive and reflective, and I think for a lot of us and a lot of you, uh, transformational. That's the idea of the, of the whole idea of it. Um, significant book in my life. Sadie mentioned it. I know others have told me the same thing. So if you're interested, I have a sign-up sheet on the white uh, white counter over on the side door, just come talk to me or email me or whatever, so, all right? Um, today, the topic is joy, and we're going to start off with a joy quiz, all right? Let's see what you can know about these topics. It's kind of like a Jeopardy kind of thing. Who said the following? Joy is a net of love by which you can catch souls. A, Charlie Brown, B, Book of Proverbs, C, C.S. Lewis, or D, Mother Teresa? D, Mother Teresa. Next one. Mounds plus almonds equal almond joy. All right. Fill in the blank on these song lyrics. Joy to the world, all the boys and girls now. Joy to the fishes and the joy to you and me. All right. A different version of joy to the world. The book, The Joy of Cooking, has sold 18 million copies. When was it first published? 1984, Martha Stewart. 1970, Julia Childs. 1966, Graham Kerr, who was also known as the Galphin Gourmet. 1931 by Irma Rombauer, and 1979 by Mother Teresa. The correct answer is D, Irma Rombauer. She was a widow, and to make her make her uh, make ends meet, she published this cookbook that became like uh, obviously a bestseller. All right. The term joystick is have originated with A, the Sega Corporation in 1967 for use with early video game technology, B, French pilot Robert Esmalt Peltry in the early 1900s, C, the Pac-Man arcade game in 1980, D, Nazi Germany in 1941, the joystick being the Stoyer Kneipfel, or E, Mother Teresa. <laughs> Correct answer is actually B. Uh, this French pilot, because it was usually initially used in an airplane. And uh, there's some debate over who gets credit for joystick, because someone else claimed it over this French guy. But <laughs> The dish, joy, dishwashing detergent introduced in 1949 by Procter & Gamble helped to begin the overall trend toward A, artificial coloring and cleaning products, B, caffeinated cleaning products, C, citrus-scented cleaning products, or D, husbands volunteering to do the dishes more often because they loved how soft their hands felt and smelled afterwards. <laughs> All right. Answer is actually C, citrus-scented cleaning products, all right? <laughs> Who said the following? This is the last one, actually one more. Some people would claim that things like love, joy, there's a word, and beauty belong to a different category from science and can't be described in scientific terms. But I think they can now be explained by the theory of evolution. 
A, Charles Darwin, B, Stephen Hawking, C, Martha Stewart, D, my high school biology teacher, and another D, but should be E, Mother Teresa. Actually, it was said by Stephen Hawking, a well-known intellectual and atheist, um, saying joy is a scientific category. But here's the last question. This is a question for all of you. What brings you joy lately? If you've been around me at all or in situations I've been in or here at Exodus, that's a question I like asking others. I like asking myself. Because um, if, we don't, if we can't answer that question, then maybe we've missed something or we misunderstand joy. But what does bring you joy lately? How would you answer that question? If you look over the last week of your life, the last month of your life, the last year of your life, when would the joy needle blip? And some of you might think, well, maybe not very much. Or maybe you equate joy with happiness. And there's some connection, although it's not exactly the same. So you might think, well, I had fun at this and I had fun at this. But we're going to be looking a lot at joy over the next few months uh, because we're talking about, go to the next slide here, one of the things we've talked about with Exodus, that our vision is going to be to be a catalyst for turning ordinary people into abnormally loving, joyful, and courageous followers of Jesus. So we're going to focus on the abnormally joyful, and to do so, we're going to be doing this for the next, I don't know how many weeks, the book of Philippians. We're going to talk about living a life of abnormal joy. Because the book of Philippians is often called the letter of joy, and we'll talk more about where that comes from. And it was written by a man named Paul to a group of Christians in the city of Philippi, Greek city of Philippi, and the word joy is spattered all the way through. And we're going to see it's, that it's somewhat counterintuitive when we see about why and when Paul was writing this. All right, so go to the next slide. So here's the challenge. How do we take, and this is a challenge of any time we study the Bible, how do we take what was meant for them then, right? Uh, that's a copy of a trans, uh, actually a copy of a manuscript. It's the oldest known manuscript copy of the book of Philippians. It was uh, dated back to 200 AD um, that has the book of Philippians on it. Many, many manuscripts were um, throughout history, and that's how we get our Bibles. That's how they make the Bibles accurate. They base it on ancient manuscripts. But in AD 62 is when it was written, so what in the world does Paul, who said something to Christians in Philippi, which we believe was under the influence of the Holy Spirit, what did he say to them then has anything to us now? How does Philippi connect to Kirkwood? And what does that mean? Because we're not just studying history, we're studying the activity of God through the Holy Spirit in the lives of real people, just like you and me, from over 2,000 years ago, but the question we have to ask is, okay, what is this Holy Spirit saying to us through these very things? All right, so let's get a little context here. The city of Philippi is in ancient Greece. Uh, the borders on the map are current borders, just to give you a sense of where things are. Uh, it was a, a city in ancient Greece. It was a Roman colony. Actually, it was a, it's in Greece, but it was a Roman colony at the time. I marked on there in Jerusalem and Rome because those are going to be key with Philippi. But this... Uh, we're going to talk today, but we're not going to actually look at the book of Philippians today. We're going to look at the book of Acts, because we're going to see when the church in Philippi actually started, 
and how Paul went there his first time, and then when we look at the whole letter of Philippians, we we'll understand the context about why Paul is so fond of these people and so encouraging of these people. All right, so Paul, who was one of the leaders in the early church, primary, kind of the first missionary in a sense, this would have been his second, they call him second missionary journey. He went on these kind of like a concert tour, but he was actually preaching the gospel. This is the second time he went throughout the known world. So he starts in Jerusalem, he goes through what is now modern-day Turkey, and through some variety of factors, which includes a vision that God gave him, which includes some other ways in which supernaturally God led them, Paul ends up in Philippi. Right? And he's there to talk to people about Jesus. So it's Paul... It's another ministry partner of his named Silas. We also know that Timothy was with them, as was Luke. So these four guys are traveling through by foot, whatever, and then actually they take a ship, and they get to Philippi for the first time. All right? So I'm going to pick this up. Uh, we're going to pick this up in Acts chapter 16, and I'll tell you when to change in a second, Paul. But Acts chapter 16 is when they first got there, alright? He says, we boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across the island of Samothrace, and the next day we landed at Neapolis. From there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia. Macedonia was kind of the area, like we may call Asia now, I think Macedonia was kind of the area, and a Roman colony, and we stayed there several days. Now, there's three primary sub-stories in this opening part of how Paul developed relationships with people in Philippi. So let's go to the next slide. The first one is with a, man, a woman named Lydia. And here's what Paul writes. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. Now, Paul, they weren't just randomly saying, let's go see if people were praying by the river. In those days, in order to have a Jewish synagogue, you had to have at least 10 male Jews in the city. If you didn't have 10 male Jews, you couldn't have a synagogue, because this was not a Jewish town. So what people would often do, they would gather some other place, and they would go through the Jewish rituals, which included various prayers or things like that. Now, in this case... So this case, that's where they went there. And they apparently had been told, hey, some people gather down by the river. And there are people who worship God. So we don't know how Jewish they were, but they obviously had some sense of worshiping the true God. So this is what Paul's doing. They go to the river. He says, one of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. She was baptized along with other members of her household, and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I'm a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. Now, this may seem like nothing big deal, not a big deal, somebody became a Christian. But what's interesting is the first convert in this town of Philippi was a woman. And again, in those days, it was, it was a very male-dominated culture. So I think the Spirit of God is saying something pretty important in this and the other ones you'll see too where the reach of God is goes way outside of what we think. Alright, so that's story number one. Story number two. Now we have a slave girl with an evil spirit. 
So there's a lot of supernatural stuff spinning in these stories too. And we do believe they're real. We believe that this world's real and these things happened. One day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money for her masters. It actually says she had a spirit, she had a python spirit is how the actual language reads. And in those days it was believed that a python or the snake spirit had some connection to the god Apollo of Greek mythology and was enabled people to speak things they didn't know. But in the biblical times, those who followed Jesus understood that spirit was not from God. It was actually from, um, from Satan. So often the Bible is, Bible is translated as a demonic spirit or an evil spirit. But that's what, that was the sense was in that culture. She was a fortune teller and earned a lot of money for her masters. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, and they have come to tell you how to be saved. Interesting. It's a demonic spirit who's causing some degree of chaos, but speaking the truth but in a way that wasn't received in the way that God would want to be received. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And I always love this next phrase, and instantly it left her. All right, so the second interaction Paul had in the city of Philippi which will begin to shape kind of his friendships and his relationships in the city of Philippi that will be the source of his letter to them later, was a demon-possessed slave girl. Now, the story goes on, though. Her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities of the marketplace. So we're assuming Timothy and Luke, who were with them, weren't dragged, partially because Luke was a Gentile, therefore... The Jews would maybe leave him alone. Timothy was half Gentile. So maybe for some reason it was Paul and Silas who were grabbed. The whole city is in uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. Right. The city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. In those days, in Roman, the Roman world, there was someone that actually would, a policeman or whatever they would call them, carried around a bundle of rods that would actually have an axe in it as well. And it was a clear symbol of that person had the authority to carry out punishment or even capital punishment when somebody violated the law. So this person would carry around rods. So well, they didn't have to go to the woods to find them. This guy had a rod that was intended, it was constructed to hit people with. That's what it was for. So they were stripped and beaten with rods. They were severely beaten, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape, so the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. So Paul right now, go to the next slide. Paul right now is in a jail in Philippi, the prisons in those days were dug underground in the rock, dark, cold, and um, you know, no air conditioning, no heat, things like that, no running water, and they had been beaten. So let's get in Paul and Silas's psyche right now. Um, cold, 
beaten, and they don't know what's going to happen next. We know the end of the story, and sometimes we do these Bible, we read these Bible stories, and we, and what I, what one author said, which I like, says, no flash forwards here. Let's not go yet to how the story ended, because we know Paul and Silas didn't know, and they're sitting stuck in this prison cell, had been, been beaten severely, the Bible says. So, and they were put in stocks, and in the Roman world, when they put you in stocks, there were multiple different ways, that, they had multiple different holes for your legs, because they often would do it so your legs would be so spread apart that it increased the discomfort, because they could, they could wash your legs that way as you lay down on the ground. So it was not, the Roman prisons were not designed for comfort, of course, in any way. So this is where they are. They're in the dungeon, inner dungeon, clamped, and their feet in the socks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. So again, put yourself in that situation. Other prisoners were listening as these two men who had just been beaten were singing at midnight. In a jail, not knowing if the next day they'd even be alive. Suddenly, there was a massive earthquake, and the prison was shaken to its foundations. All the doors immediately flew open, and the chains of every prisoner fell off. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. Because in those days, if a prisoner escaped, the life of the guard was taken. So he was assuming they were already gone. But Paul shouted to him from the inner dungeon, Stop! Don't kill yourselves. We are all here. So nobody escaped. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now saved, of course this guy wasn't a Christian. He doesn't use the word saved the way we might use it. But in the, in the, in the cultural usage of that term, saved meant I want to be made whole. I want to be made right. Because this, something's flipping in this jailer's head because these guys were singing in a prison after being beaten. And I'm sure he started to figure out what is up with, who are these guys? What kind of men are they? So Paul and Silas replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. So I'm going to stop there. They were actually released the next day. You can finish reading the story from Acts chapter 16. So the first story was Lydia, this, a woman who was not even a Jew. Second story, second relationship in Philippi was this slave girl who had a demonic, pythonic spirit that Paul cast out of her. And the third is a Roman prison guard who's thoroughly pagan, not Jewish at all. These are the core of his relationships he builds in Philippi. But what I want to focus on is what happened in the jail. And this is what I have. Go to the next slide here. So here's from my Bible, the one I just read from. This is Acts chapter 16. And let me just reread part of it. Starting with verse 22. A mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape, so the jailer put them into the inner dungeon 
and clamped their feet in stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. Here's the question I have when I was reading this this week. What in the world happened between verse 24 and verse 25? Go to the next slide. What's going on there? People who have been severely beaten don't sing. Where is that coming from? If I'm severely beaten, if I'm in a cold jail with my legs spread apart to the point of pain, what they're used to hearing in those jails is moaning and groaning and cursing. So what kind of men are they who find some kind of joy, there's our word, abnormal joy, that they can sing praises to God in the midst of that situation? So here's the question I'll ask for the next one. So hey, Paul and Silas, what brings you joy lately? Getting beaten with wooden rods or being in a stinky, dark dungeon? Doesn't that redefine joy a little bit for some of us? I'm not saying the only way to joy is through pain and suffering, but it sure puts joy in a different category. Joy is not the same as happy. The joy of cooking or joy this or joy that or all the joy things we often use. I think we intuitively know joy is different than happiness. That's why I think when you ask people, when I ask people about uh, what brings you joy, I think often, myself included, we're a little bit, we have to stop and think about it because we can think about what's made us happy lately, but joy seems to be a different category. So what in the world's going on there? How do you get that kind of joy? That's when I read this, I thought, how do I become that kind of person? They were not faking it. Again, they don't know how the story ended. As far as they knew, they would be killed the next day. They didn't know. There was no promise of release. They didn't know it was going to be written up in a Bible and people would be reading about them for years and singing songs about Paul and Silas in jail. They had no celebrity wannabe status. They thought they were stuck, most likely forgotten, because they were beaten in a dark jail, but yet they're singing praises to God. And again, my response is, how, how, how do I get that? Because sometimes I think in the Christian world, in the church world, we do what I call, we have what I call uh, kind of the plastic Jesus smiles. Um, where we think we're supposed to be happy, so we're, oh, we're happy, I'm happy. Because we think we're supposed to be that way. And even when things are hard, which is okay to be sad, it's okay to have, it's okay to go through suffering with sadness, but yet it seems like joy is this quality of somebody's soul that is like a deep river undergirding all that, that no matter what sadness or pain or suffering or discomfort is built on top of it, there's something underneath that feels incredibly grounded, incredibly content, and incredibly peaceful. Not, not like, oh, I love, not... I'm not talking about like pain wannabe. I'm not saying let's go figure out how to get hurt so we can be joyful. But joyfulness is the character of our souls that no matter what happens, no matter what happens to you or to me this week, tomorrow, next month, that there's something in us that is deeply peaceful, deeply content, and absolutely convinced we are absolutely safe in a world because God is overseeing all of us.
I want to be that kind of person. I'm not there, and my guess is a lot of us aren't there. But how do you get to be that kind of person? How do you get that kind of joy? My car makes funny sounds in the morning and I complain. The food doesn't taste right at a restaurant and I complain. And it seems as if joy maybe is more of an activity than it is a feeling. Because in spite of what was going on, they chose to be joyful. Not in a fake way. There, weren't, there was nobody they were trying to impress. Sometimes we kind of can pretend that because we're trying to be impressive. Well, I'm so happy in the Lord. But there was nobody they were trying to impress. They had no idea it was going to be written down and read by millions and millions and millions of people throughout the centuries. So how do you get that kind of joy? How do you become that abnormally joyful person? Because those things do happen to us in our lives. Hard things do happen to people who love Jesus. There's no promises he gave us to avoid those things. And what's fascinating in the book of Philippians, the word joy in some form occurs 16 times. Where was Paul when he wrote the book of Philippians? In jail. This is a later time in jail because the, the letter to the Philippians is written 12 years later than this scenario. But I wonder if Paul had a redefined understanding of joy from that experience. Because maybe he thought, this is, this is what I want to be. I want to have that kind of depth and strength and joy of character. Because 12 years later when he's writing the Philippians and telling them to be joyful and rejoice in the Lord and I'm filled with joy... He's sitting in a Roman prison. And so that's why the book of Philippians is also often called the, the letter or the epistle of joy. Because it makes no sense. And how do you become the kind of person that has that kind of joy? Where it's become, again, not, not a fake sense of I'm happy because God loves me. Not that. I'm not talking about pretend joy. I'm not talking about false smiles or plastic happiness. I'm talking about this deep-seated contentment and sense that you are safe in the universe that God oversees. Safe in the sense of what your soul is safe. People may hurt your body. Your body may have sickness or cancer. But there's a security and a safety of soul that nothing can shake you because you have absolute confidence in your loving Father. How do I become that kind of person? And can you imagine if we were all that kind of people, what kind of curiosity would be aroused from your friends and neighbors? I mean, why did all the prisoners not escape? Did Paul and Silas convince them not to escape? Were they, we don't know. But Paul says, we're all here. But were the other ones so intrigued with Paul and Silas's unique emotional capacity of joy that they didn't escape? Because maybe Paul and Silas had persuaded them not to. We don't know, but they didn't. What was it about the Roman God? What did he see in those people that he was so intrigued by? Wasn't, Paul didn't have a tract to give them. He didn't read the Bible to them. But the garden knew something was different about these people. And the difference was kind of in the depth of their soul. Because isn't the essence of Christianity is that we have a saved soul and by that I mean not just a ticket to heaven, but a soul that is made whole and healed and fully alive under the 
kingship of God? How do we become those kind of people? So that's what we're looking at the next number of weeks in the book of Philippians is joy and how do you become that kind of person and what's Paul getting at and how, to, again, how does Philippians, how does that message translate to Bloomington, Indiana and Kirkwood Avenue and all the things our lives involve. So uh, let's pray and then we'll take, God's, uh, take the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you um, Paul and Silas tend to be, can easily be kind of transformed into a really nice children's story with really fun songs to sing about it. But at the same time, God, we look at these two individuals, and I, my guess is there's something in each one of us that craves deeply to be like them. Um, so God, as we embark on a journey toward living a life of abnormal joy. Would you show us things? Would you lead us down paths? Would you open up our hearts? Whatever you need to do, God, to get us to allow you to bring that kind of change and transformation to our hearts. Because we want to be those kind of abnormally strong and joyful people. We want to be the kind of people who have absolute confidence in your goodness in our lives. So would you open up our hearts and allow you to do whatever you need to do to transform us into those kind of life-giving people. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, we finish every Sunday at Exodus with uh, communion.